Well, good morning. Would you join me in prayer as we uh, look to God's word this morning in these troubled times? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is sovereign over all creation. None of this is surprising you. Everything that's going on right now in our lives, you see it all and you care about it all. And Father, I think, you know, this isn't the only thing that's going on in the world. There's so many other things that people are struggling with and dealing with in the world that, that we don't hear about. And this is just one more thing on top of it. But I pray, Almighty God, that as we look into your word today, that we, by your Holy Spirit, would be enlightened. And that we would be inspired and equipped, Lord God, to be fueled by our faith and not by our reactions to what's going on around us. And so, Lord, go before us and be in us as we look to this word. We pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, in a view from the zoo, Gary Richmond shares his experience as a zookeeper and a veterinarian's assistant at the famed Los Angeles Zoo. And one of the stories that has always held a place in the back of my mind describes the strange process involved in the birth of a giraffe. The first thing to emerge are the baby giraffe's front hooves and head. And a few minutes later, the plucky newborn calf is hurled forth, falls 10 feet, and lands on its back. And within seconds, he rolls to an upright position with his legs tucked under his body. And from this position, he considers the world for the first time and shakes off the last vestiges of the birthing fluid from his eyes and ears. The mother giraffe lowers her head long enough to take a quick look, and then she positions herself directly over her calf. She waits for about a minute, and then she does the most unreasonable thing. She swings her long, pendulous leg toward her baby, and then she kicks her baby so that it is sent sprawling head over heels. When it doesn't get up, the violent process is repeated over and over again, And the struggle to rise is absolutely momentous. As the baby calf grows, tired, the mother kicks it again to stimulate its efforts. Finally, the calf stands for the first time on its wobbly legs. Then the mother giraffe does the most remarkable thing. She kicks it off its feet again. Why? Well, she wants it to remember how it got up. In the wild, baby giraffes must be able to get up as quickly as possible in order to stay with the herd where there is safety. Lions and hyenas and leopards and wild hunting dogs all enjoy young giraffes, and they'd get it too if the mother didn't teach her calf to get up quickly and get with it. Now, I've thought about the birth of the giraffe many times, and I can see its parallel in my own life and in what's going on around us in life. There have been many times when it seemed that I just stood up after a trial only to be knocked down again by the next one. Now, right now, during this whole coronavirus thing, some of you might feel like that baby giraffe. One trial on top of another trial. And this one's a big one. And just when you think you finally regained your footing, another shot to the shins leaves you sprawled on the ground, flinching in fear. Disappointment, disillusionment, and disablement, and discouragement, they all spring from one thing, fear. 
Fear of being alone to deal with these problems. Fear of being swamped by the storm. Fear of forfeiting the ministry to which God has called you. Or even fear that you might abandon the faith in all of this. Ironically, like the mother giraffe, God does not want us to give up, but to get up. And the very thing that leaves us looking up from the ground is exactly what God often uses to help us to remember how to get up and to walk with him in his shadow under his care. Now, whether you're talking about how we will engage in ministry and connect as the church, if this social distancing thing turns to forced lockdown or, or doing life as it is, it's not the same anymore. The setbacks are not designed, however, to cause us fear, but to teach us faith. The greatness of our fear shows the littleness of our faith. And many times Jesus uses stormy seas in life as his pathway to peace. Now, the key to dealing with fear, whether it's in your family or in the ministry or through this crisis, is to catch sight of Jesus in and through it all. As Christians called by Christ to be his ministers in a storm-tossed world, it will help us to learn how to alleviate that fear. Fear in the storms can be alleviated through faith in the Savior. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14 and follow with me as I read verses 22 to 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. Now what I want you to do right now is notice in, in this text the contrasting scenes. It's like watching a movie that keeps flipping back and forth between characters. On the one hand, we have a picture of complete chaos. On the other, absolute control. In the boat, there is confusion. There's panic. On the mountain, there's quietness and peace. Through the disciples, we see the fearfulness of our fragile humanity in them. In Christ, we see the power of a sovereign deity. It's the picture of life right now. And the $64,000 question is, where is life when life gets stormy? Where is God when life gets stormy? Are you asking that question right now? 
I think a lot of people are asking that question right now. Because you're not all alone in it. And don't let anyone tell you that you're not spiritual if you're asking that question. Because growth in Christ requires that the tough questions be asked. Jesus loves it when we ask him questions. Why? Because for that split second that we're asking Jesus a question, we're looking directly toward him. I'm intrigued by one former pastor's insight. He wrote, I often meet people who are waiting to follow God until they have all their questions answered. They'll be waiting a long, long time because if we knew everything, we'd be God. His church once sponsored something called a doubt night. And people were encouraged to write down whatever questions or doubts they had about God and Jesus and the Bible and faith and the church. And it drew an incredible number of people. And the, and the thing was that was so powerful was the fact that they were free to ask the deepest, hardest questions imaginable, free to voice the stormy struggles that were, they were struggling with. And he continues, questions aren't scary. What's scary is when people don't have any questions because it's questions that brings freedom. Freedom that I don't have to be God and that I don't have to pretend that I have it all figured out. I can let God be God. See, truth always leads to more truth because truth is insight into God and God is infinite. Now, I agree with what's at the heart of those statements, especially that truth leads to more truth. But the problem is that years later, this particular pastor's questions have not led him to to teaching the truth, but to teach flat out heresy. So it didn't work for him. Why? Probably because his questions were based on assumptions that were not true. And there's no guarantee that lies will ever lead us to the truth. And that's what we have to be careful about today with all of this crisis. Sorting out the truth and not believing the lies. Now, I absolutely agree that God is bigger than any of our questions. But it's not the questions that get us. It's our fears that get us. Yet God is also bigger than any fear that we have. Now, there are a handful of things about the person of Jesus Christ in this text that I believe will encourage every one of us in the midst of our fears. And I want to highlight five of them overall. We're going to look at three today and then the last couple next time. But the first one is this, that in times of separation, when we feel separated from God, disconnected, and we think he's far from us, His divine position relieves our disappointment. Look at verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now Matthew says that Jesus made them get into the boat. This is a strong word in the Greek language. It means that he compelled them, he commanded them to leave ahead of him. And the implication is that they didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay right next to him. They may have even argued with him. Why? Why leave? The greater context helps us. Everything was going great. They had just fed 5,000 men and women and children. 
The crowd was excited. They were becoming increasingly popular with the people. Why should we leave now, they're asking Jesus, or they're thinking. Well, in God's eyes, it was necessary, I believe, for them to leave. From Jesus' divine perspective, he saw the need to get them out of the situation that was going in the wrong direction. One of the reasons he sent them away is recorded, actually, by John in John's gospel. In John chapter 6, in verses 14 and 15, we read these words. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They needed to get away from the feverish crowd. Why? Because they were getting all caught up in it. I know this is pure speculation, but given the disciples' character traits and what we know about them from reading other scriptures, Jesus likely sent them away to deliver them from the temptation of earthly popularity, the Christian celebrity syndrome. They probably didn't want to go. They enjoyed all the action that Jesus was receiving. They loved the attention that he was getting. And they undoubtedly feared Jesus' absence. And don't we? But Jesus forced them out for their own good. And a couple of things surface here. The first one is this. We're stabilized by Jesus' sensitivity. Sometimes Jesus sends us out of the excitement and we don't like it. Success invigorates us. Popularity propels us no matter what we're involved in. Even in this crisis, I need to tell you that there is this underlying pressure for pastors and churches to get ahead of it and be on the cutting edge of technology and being able to bring you services online and all these kinds of things. And I feel for the poor pastors and churches that don't have this opportunity and they can't do this. And and the probably the false guilt that they're feeling because they can't do it. And we ourselves can't do it like other churches can do it. See, we enjoy the approval and the affirmation and and the applause of the crowds. As people, we often live by sight and not by faith. But Jesus is sensitive to what we need and he often does the unthinkable thing. Against what we often want to do, he sends us into the night of storms and doubts. Into what St. John of the Cross often referred to as the dark night of the soul. An anonymous English writer called it the dark night of faith. George Fox described the experience this way. When it was day, I wished for night. And when it was night, I wished for day. It's sort of a spiritual Sahara of the heart, as Richard Foster put it. In this desert, we have doubts. We feel abandoned by everyone, including God. You feel abandoned by God right now? Our hope tends to evaporate. Our dreams begin to die. And it's here that we struggle and we wrestle And we hurt. And we find it frustrating to even pray. 
With the psalmist, we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you refuse to help me or even listen to my groans? Day and night, I keep on weeping and crying for your help, but there is no reply. And we remember those words of Jesus from the cross. In his humanity, he knows exactly how many of us might feel right now in this storm. That Jesus' mercy and his love for us are still strong and unfailing, and we are never Never out of his sight. Through it all, in an incredibly paradoxical way, by threatening to destroy our faith, he purifies our faith. He will teach us, if we let him, to find fulfillment in him, rather than indulging our ego, which tends to edge God out of the picture. Jesus not only sent the disciples away, but he sent the crowds away as well. He burst their messianic bubble. Maybe the crowd's enthusiasm was a temptation, not only for the disciples, but possibly even for him. He was, after all, human and tempted in all things as we are, according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. But Jesus' original intent was to go up to the mountain to pray. But that was interrupted by the crowds. The urgent needs of ministry, however, when it got out of hand, when all the glory started coming, Jesus knew that he had to get alone with his father. But being in the limelight may be good for a time, but the key to spiritual strength and health is not in the time that you spend on center stage, but in the time that you spend in the prayer closet. And this is a real lesson right now. For many people in the church who are going to miss coming together and being in services where their hearts are buoyed up with inspiration and joy and now we're separated from each other and now we're getting into the nitty gritty of what the church needs to be in society and what the church needs to be with each other. There's no lights. There's no fanfare. Jesus went up to the mountain alone to pray. Maybe in this crisis, Jesus wants us to go to that mountain and pray alone. You ever wonder what Jesus might have prayed for? I think he prayed for his father's will. He prayed for his own strength to go to the cross. He prayed for the crowds to see their spiritual needs rather than their physical needs. He prayed for his disciples. I think he prayed for us right now. Possibly. At least that's his pattern in John chapter 17. Jesus always prays for his own, for his beloved. We're not only stabilized by Jesus' sensitivity, but we're also secure in his prayers. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says that he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. The message says that Jesus is, quote, always on the job to speak up for us. Just remember when in Luke chapter 22, in verses 31 and 32, when uh, Satan stormed Peter and wanted to sift him like wheat, what did Christ say? But I, Peter, have prayed for you. I've prayed for you. The fact that Jesus continually prays for you and me should help Help alleviate at least some of our fears. 
He may send us out knowingly into the storm, but we don't have to be afraid. We're stabilized by his sensitivity. We're secure in his prayers. In times of separation, his divine position relieves our disappointment. Secondly, in times of storms, his divine protection relieves our disillusionment. That's in verses 24 and 25. Follow with me. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Now here we have the disciples. They've they've left reluctantly. And now they were a long way off, and they're all alone in the middle of this raging crisis, this raging storm. And John 6, verse 19, says that they were about three to four miles out Now, the entire trip along the shore to their destination, which was probably Bethsaida, was only about three miles total. So you you know that they were blown totally off course. Matthew says that they were being battered by the waves. Literally, the word means that they were being tortured and tormented by the waves. Mark chapter 6 and verse 48 in a parallel passage says that they were straining at the oars They knew these waters, they were experienced sailors, but this storm threw them into a panic. They could not rely on their own ability anymore. It was not working for them. They couldn't even rely on Jesus at that point because he wasn't there. Not within eyesight anyway. They were disappointed, they were disillusioned, they were desperate, they were fearful, they were exhausted, And they were beaten. They were experiencing what Max Lucado calls a doubt storm. And we all have them. Doubt storms are the turbulent days when the enemy is too big, the task is too great, the future is too bleak, and the answers are too few. Doesn't that sound like what we're going through right now? Have you ever had a doubt storm? Are you in a doubt storm right now? You ever asked the question, where are you in this, God? And when you ask that question, you're usually deep in the doubt storm. Sometimes in the thick of it, we fear that we're all alone in a sinking boat with no hope of survival. But friends, the facts are absolutely contrary. Even in a doubt storm, the size of a global pandemic. The facts are contrary, that Jesus is there. The first thing I want to show you is that we're secure in his sight. We're secure in his sight. What the disciples didn't know and what we often forget is that Jesus always sees us in the midst of our storm. In Mark chapter 6, and verse 48 Mark writes, seeing them straining at the oars, get that, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he, meaning Jesus, came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, even in the midst of straining at the oars, trying with everything that we have to stay afloat, when the winds of life storms trash us and we're absolutely convinced that Jesus is nowhere around, 
he sees us. In the agony of storm, stormy marriage, he sees you. In the stress of losing a job, which is a very real possibility right now for a lot of people, he's watching you. In the frustration of financial distress, Jesus is praying for you. In the trauma of physical pain, he's hurting with you. In the emptiness of emotional depression, in the turbulence of a personal tragedy, in the uncertainty of life in general, he sees, he prays, and finally he comes. So we're not only secure in his sight, but secondly, we're strengthened by his grace. It says that he came to them walking on the sea. He came to them walking on the sea in verse 25. It's stated so matter-of-factly. He came to them walking on the sea. That's because it's nothing for Jesus to waltz right into the stormiest crisis of your life and meet you right there in the center of it. Aren't you glad we have a God who can't sit still when the storm gets too rough? He's got a record of doing that kind of thing, you know. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have seen it. And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings, the scripture says. Psalm chapter 116, Psalm 116 verses 1 to 4 says this. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. Psalm 138, verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with the strength of my soul. We're secure in his sight. Strengthened by his grace. But often, thirdly, we're stretched, sometimes to the limit, by his timing. Verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. You know what that says to me? That Jesus waited. He waited a long time. He didn't come until the fourth watch. The Romans divided the night into four watches, 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and then 3 to 6 a.m. Jesus sent them away around 6 p.m., and now it was somewhere between 3 And six o'clock in the morning, and they had been on that sea battling all night long. They were out of their minds with fear. This crisis, this storm was lasting way too long for their liking. It had been a rough stretch for them. And this might last a long time for us. And we might begin to think, as they did, What are you thinking, Jesus? What are you thinking? Well, not only did he wait a long time to come, but Mark 6 and verse 48 also says that he intended to pass by them. 
Now, have you ever felt like you're in a boat rowing like mad and one by one the waves are crashing in your face and you're wondering if Jesus is some sort of unfeeling, indifferent God who has lost interest in you? I've had times like that. Maybe you're going through them right now. And I think sometimes he waits until we're at the end of our strength on purpose. I think he does it so that we can better understand the concept that without him, we can do nothing. John 15, 5. But I also believe he wants to show us something else. I think he wants to show us something more. That we are never really without him. He's always there. But sometimes he purposely makes us strain our eyes to make him out and to see him. He stretches us. He waits until the last watch of the night, until we're at the end of ourselves in fear. Why? He wants to meet us right there, right there, to build our faith. He wants us to call out to him even when, especially when, he seems furthest away. Like at 3 a.m. in the middle of a storm. Dale Bruner notes that according to the Holy Scriptures, human extremity is the frequent meeting place with God, unquote. One author says it. Mark tells us that Jesus intended to pass by them on the water. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost. Why did Jesus want to pass by them? Have you ever thought about that? Author David Garland points out that the verb parerkamai, to pass by, used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, was a technical term to refer to what they call a theophany. That's a defining moment when God makes a striking and temporary appearance in this earthly realm to, to a select individual or a group for the purpose of communicating a message. So, for instance... God put Moses in the cleft of a rock so Moses could see while his glory passed by. The Lord passed before him, it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. And Exodus 34, verse 6. Another example in the Old Testament, God told Elijah when he was in his depressive state uh, in the cave, he told Elijah to stand on the mountain, quote, for the Lord is about to pass by, unquote, in 1 Kings 19. There's a pattern to these stories. In each case, God had to get the people's attention through a burning bush or wind or fire or walking on the water. And with each person, God was going to call them to do something extraordinary. In each situation, the person that God called felt afraid. But every time that, that the people said yes to their calling, they experienced the power of God in their life. So when Jesus came to the disciples on the water, intending to pass by, he was not just doing a neat magic trick. He was revealing his divine presence and power. He was showing them who he was, that he could deliver from any storm, because he was God Almighty. Only God can do such a thing as that. 
He alone treads on the waves of the sea. Now, while Jeremiah was still in jail, in the midst of his stormy time in ministry, God's reassuring word came to him. And in that still small voice, God said to Jeremiah these words. He said, call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Jeremiah 33.3. I call that the spiritual 911. Jeremiah 33.3. I... Call to me, God says. Or as the New Living Translation translates it, ask me and I will tell you some remarkable secrets about what is going to happen here. And that's why I think we need to focus on Jesus Christ and on God during this time of crisis. Look at his face. Seek him out in his word. Pray. Ask him. And he will reveal some remarkable secrets in the midst of this storm that are happening. And we see that already in the church and the things that are happening out in the community and the way that God is using this crisis to actually spread the gospel and to meet people's needs. Faith and trust in the person of Jesus is what dismantles the fear that shortcuts our service. When we experience separation, his position relieves our disappointment. When we experience storms, His protection relieves our disillusionment. And then thirdly, in times of stress, his presence relieves our disability. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I Do not be afraid. Now here it is at this point when we're ready to splinter under the stress that Jesus often reveals himself to us. And the worst part is that most of the time we don't even recognize his revelation. We don't. The disciples experienced what I call Casper confusion here because it reminds me so much of the cartoon Casper the Friendly Ghost when I was a kid. You remember Casper? He was always showing up to help people that were in trouble, but they always responded to him in fear and they ran away. Enter the disciples. Jesus sees them hurting and helpless from the mountain and he comes to their aid and they react in terror, crying out, It's a ghost! Mark 6.50 says that they all saw him and were absolutely terrified in the Phillips translation. Can you relate to that? Sometimes we're surprised by his appearance. It's happened to me more times than I care to admit. There have been times when I have found myself in near panic mode, straining at the storm, crying out in fear, and I almost miss seeing Jesus in the midst of it all. I see people doing it right now during this crisis. People hoarding and stockpiling, not thinking about other people, thinking about only themselves. They're caught in the throes of conflict and they completely miss the encounter with Jesus. Where is Jesus in all of this? You know why? It's because people don't expect him to come. Let me ask you, do you expect him to come? Do you expect him? 
Sometimes God uses the storms of life as his pathway to peace. He lets us get scared enough to need him, and then he comes close enough for us to see him. But sadly, and way too often, we just miss him. People just miss him all the time. My friends, don't miss him. Don't miss him right now in the midst of this crisis. He doesn't always still the storm, you know, first. Sometimes it takes a storm for us to notice him, but when we finally catch a glimpse of him, we're not only surprised by his appearance, but just as quickly, the scripture says, we're soothed by his voice. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. In his great book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat, author and pastor John Ortberg observes, what would you guess is the most common command in Scripture? It's not for us to be more loving. That may be the core to God's desire for human life, but that is not the most frequent instruction in the Scripture. Writers about spiritual life often speak of pride as being at the root of human failure. Fallenness, But the Bible's most frequent imperative does not have to do with avoiding pride or gaining humility. It's not a command to guard sexual purity or to walk with integrity, important as all those qualities are. The single command in Scripture that occurs more often than any other, God's most frequently repeated instruction is, fear not. Or the equivalent statements like, Do not be afraid or be strong and courageous. You can trust me. Fear not. You know, I think God says fear not so often because fear is the number one reason human beings are tempted to avoid doing what God asks them to do. So we need this command all the time. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for healthy fear. But I want trust to be stronger than fear in me. I I want my faith to be greater than fear. As one writer put it, I never want the no of fear to trump the yes of faith. I never want the no of fear to trump the yes of of faith. In the midst of their fear, Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. But read between these lines, okay? And something incredible is going to emerge to you. Between the words, take courage and don't be afraid, is the most comforting and confidence-building truth about Jesus that you will ever encounter in the scriptures. In between those two phrases, Take courage and do not be afraid is the phrase, it is I. You know what that is in the original language? It's literally the words, I am. I am. The Old Testament name of God. Beloved, in the middle of your storm, in the middle of this storm, in between your fear and your weakness, Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is. 
Take courage, Jesus says. I am. Do not be afraid. Sound familiar? It's a lesson every man, woman, and child of God has had to learn. Words we all need to hear. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 6 and 8 say this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, many of you have probably memorized it. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And in the New Testament in Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's so apropos to right now. Years ago, something happened to me that instantly drove this point home. My wife Denise called me here at the office, and Matthew, who was two years old at the time, my youngest son, was screaming in a panic. He had seen a picture of me in a photo album, and he started crying for daddy. And though he saw my image, he didn't sense my presence. So while Denise had me on the phone, I could hear him screaming in the background. And so Denise put him on the phone and I spoke to him. And the most amazing thing happened. Instantly his voice softened and he calmed down. That panicky two-year-old had to hear the voice of his dad before his fears would subside. A picture wasn't enough. Luckily, I was only a phone call away. Jeremiah 33, 3. You know, if you get panicky, a picture or a, or a quote on a screen might not calm down your nerves. What you need to do is go to the Lord in prayer and listen for his voice. And your father will speak to you in your heart and calm you. In the midst of life's storms, you may catch a glimpse of your heavenly father. You may see a picture of him in someone else's action, in the words of a testimony or song. You may even see him in the beauty of creation. But there will be times when that picture won't be enough to calm your fears. You're going to need to hear his voice. And prayer is the phone call that will calm your fears. So, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you phoned your father? Well, as I wrap this up, let me say and ask these questions to you. Have you ever feared anything? Like, do you have certain phobias? Have you ever feared, for instance, driving over a bridge? If so, you're not alone, you know. Jephyrophobia is the anxiety disorder or specific phobia characterized by fear of bridges. 
In fact, some people are so afraid of bridges, they will drive hours out of their way in order to avoid a bridge. Others try to cross but have a panic attack in the middle of a bridge and can't go on. They block traffic. Because of this, the operators of some of the longest and highest spans in America now offer a driver's service on request where the bridge attendants will get behind the wheel of your car and drive the car over the bridge if you're too afraid to drive yourself. Get this, between 1,200 and 1,400 calls are made every year to Michigan's Driver's Assistance Program that provides motorists with a crew to drive them across the Mackinac Bridge, which is five miles long and rises 200 feet above the water. The New York State Thruway Authority will lead Jephyrophobiacs uh, over the Tappan Zee Bridge. A driver can call the authority in advance and arrange for someone to drive the car over the bridge for them. The William Preston Lane Jr. Memorial Bridge, known as the Bay Bridge, spans nearly five miles of the Chesapeake Bay to connect Maryland's eastern and western shores. Standing 180 feet, 186 feet tall at its highest point, the structure, which is regularly subject to violent, violent storms, instills fear in thousands and thousands of Baltimore and Washington residents every time they drive across it. An entrepreneurial Maryland man is charging $25 to drive motorists in his own car across one of the world's scariest bridges because they are too terrified to do it themselves. About 5,800 people, he said, use our service. Alex Robinson of Ken Island Express told the New York Times, aside from the Ken Island Express, two other companies ferry drivers across the Nightmare Bridge. Listen, my friends, Bridges aren't the only things that cause fear in people's hearts. Can you say coronavirus? In any terrifying situation, the way to get over the paralysis of fear is to do like these motorists do. They turn the wheel over to somebody else. They give the driver's seat to somebody else. So turn the situation over to God and then trust him. You have to cross the bridge. We all have to cross this bridge. But you need to know that we're not doing it alone. And God is the one who is in control. Mark 6, 51 in the Living Bible says this, Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. And they just sat there, unable to take it in. You might be panicking today at the thought of yet another storm in your life. You may even feel you're on a sinking ship right now. The winds are too strong, the waves are too high, the journey seemingly way too hard. Can I give you some hope? Strain your eyes and look. Jesus is showing himself to you. Perk your ears and listen. Open your eyes and see. Because he's trying to get your attention. Let him into your boat. You may be scared to death about crossing another spiritual bridge. The prospect of committing yourself to Christ and moving from unbelief to belief is almost paralyzing to you. You've got to let Jesus take you across. It's the only way. So, In the presence of Christ, the storm can and will be stilled. The panic will subside. 
There is no disappointment, no disillusionment, no discouragement, no disablement so severe that it's beyond Christ's concern or control. The decision is yours. He came for you. He died for you. He rose for you. And he's making his appearance for you in the midst of this storm. So believe and receive Jesus. And by the way, it's not a religious decision. It's a relationship decision. Jesus said, I've told you all this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart, I have conquered the world. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of your words in this text of Scripture, realizing, Lord God, that it applies to our very lives even in this day. Help us to not do what the disciples did and panic in fear, but rather turn that to a focus of faith on Jesus Christ. Lord God, we pray for the days ahead. We pray for you to come to us walking on the sea, walking on top of this storm, and may we see you in your appearing to us and hear your voice calming us down, saying, take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. For I ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.